welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode 82, Factors That Affect Gobbling with Derek Colbert. And I am your host and the guy who is steadily conquering the honeydew list at home now that turkey season is over. And we are 300 days, 10 hours, 33 minutes, and 28 seconds away from opening day of turkey season in Alabama. And I know that a good bit of the country wrapped up season this past weekend. And there's still several states out there that have season open. Those in the northeast as well as a few out west. So some of you guys are still turkey hunting while I am sitting here with my bottom lip poked out, just like you guys were doing in mid-March when I was turkey hunting and you were sitting around with your bottom lip poked out. So my time has come. So before we get into today's show, I want to read a review from Andrew Derrick on iTunes. And Andrew says, five stars, nothing else like it. Hands down the best turkey hunting podcast available. Can't wait for each week's episode for on-the-road enjoyment. Beginner to advanced, you will learn something from Andy and guests. Andrew Derrick, Longbeard Mafia. Andrew, I appreciate the compliment and the time that you took to post that review on iTunes. That is very much appreciated. And it does help other listeners to be able to find the show and decide whether or not they want to listen. So... I am back from my annual out-of-state trip with my hunting buddies. And of course, this year we went to West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland. And I had a great time on the trip, but you know, the trip just had an odd feel to it the whole time we were gone. And I think I just really have to get used to hunting in people's backyards. So do you guys remember the episode about urban turkey hunting? I think it was episode 71. Well, other than our time in West Virginia... The remainder of our trip in Virginia and Maryland was spent suburban turkey hunting, where we hunted 100 to 300 acre farms, and there were houses all around these properties that we were hunting. It was really strange for me, even though I was doing nothing wrong, and I had permission to be on these properties that I was on, I felt like I was being watched and was somewhere that I was not supposed to be. And as we go through these states in the Northeast, I understand that's something I'm just going to have to get over because two, three, and 4,000 acre parcels of private land are pretty much unheard of in those smaller states north of the Mason-Dixon line. So it's a mental thing for me. I'm just going to have to get past it. 
Now for the first time on now for the first time on one of the out of state trips with the guys, I came away empty handed. Although I was an active participant in the demise of two more birds and was an observer when another one took a load of number sixes to the head. And I had plenty of opportunities to take Jake's and I passed them up. And coming away from one of these trips or even one of those states empty-handed was bound to happen. And the fact that I've been to 17 or 18 different states on these types of trips without striking out is pretty amazing in my mind. So I'm not terribly disappointed by it. It's something, like I said, that was bound to happen and I'm sure it's going to happen again at some point in the future. So I just have to keep moving forward and get these things knocked out. Well, speaking of pretty amazing things, today's episode is just that. So how many times have you looked at the weather forecast for your off days of Saturday and Sunday? And you've seen predictions for two absolutely gorgeous days where the high temps were forecast to be in the upper 60s with a light 5 mile per hour wind. The barometric pressure is supposed to be steady just a bluebird day and you thought man the turkeys are going to be gobbling their brains out saturday and sunday but when saturday rolls around you hear two turkeys gobble a total of eight times and on sunday you hear six turkeys in the same area that you hunted saturday and those six turkeys gobble a total of 250 to 300 times how many times has that happened and you've actually wondered what the difference is. Why was Saturday different than Sunday? They were identical weather days, but yet Saturday you almost couldn't buy a gobble. Sunday turkeys are tripping all over themselves to gobble. Well, that's one of the things that I'm discussing with our guest today. Derek Colbert, who is currently a wildlife biologist with the USDA, he did a research project for his master's degree while he was studying at UGA. That research project studied the effects of weather, nesting, and hunting pressure on wild turkeys at two different locations in Georgia. So rather than me tell you all about the study that he did, I'm going to let Derek tell us more. So you guys listen in closely, and I will see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. I am excited to tell you that I have on the line with me today Derek Colbert, who is a wildlife biologist who is doing some pretty interesting things now, but while he was getting his degree, and his master's degree to be specific, did a research project that there's no thinking. I know everyone who's listening to this show is going to be extremely interested in hearing about his research project, not only how it took place, how he gathered his data, but also what the findings were from that research. So I want to welcome Derek on the show. Derek, how are you and where are you? I'm doing great, Andy. Thanks for having me. I'm currently yeah. in White Plains, New York, working on Westchester County Airport with Wildlife Service. Good deal. And I want to ask you when we get towards the end of this exactly what you're doing with them. But right now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the interview, several months ago I started a new segment of the show. I call it the Rapid Fire Q&A to where I'll start a stopwatch. And I've got 30 questions that I'd like to run through and ask you. They're just general questions, nothing specific. And, you know, a lot of people, when I say this, they say, well, are you going to be asking me questions about wild turkeys? Like, you know, what is the beard and what is this and what is it? No, no, no. But even if I asked those questions, you'd be able to answer them being a biologist. So I'd be a piece of cake for you. Yeah, I would hope so. But, <laughs> but these are more general questions. So if you want to play along, I'll start the stopwatch and we'll run through and go, go through all 30 of these questions. And we'll see if you can beat 
Chris Parrish's time of 2 minutes and 8.96 seconds. That's going to be tough, but it uh, sounds like a fun challenge, so let's do it. All right. I like that attitude. How many full-body turkey mounts do you own? Zero. How many turkeys did you kill last year? Zero. Diaphragm, a box, pot and peg, or wing bone? Diaphragm. Wild turkey, grilled, baked, or fried? Grilled. Wild turkey, on the rocks, neat, with cola or with water? With cola. Do you have any grand slams? No. What's the make of your shotgun? Remington. Make of your favorite shotgun turkey shell? Mm, heavy shot. Have you ever killed a bearded hen? No. Have you ever killed a Jake? No. A 10-minute successful hunt on a 2-year-old bird or a 4-hour long hunt with a clean miss on a 4-year-old bird? Uh, 4-hour hunt. Favorite camo pattern? Ooh, a good one. Uh, mossy oak. Wild turkey legs for dinner or for the dog? Uh, for dinner. More or less than 5 strikers in your turkey vest? Less. 30 mile per hour winds blowing at home the last day of turkey season. Are you hunting or sleeping in? Hunting. The state you killed your first turkey in. Have not yelled yet killed the turkey. All right. Uh, then we'll skip the next question, which is the state you killed your last turkey in. Okay. Sit in a blind for four hours and squeeze the trigger or run and gun for one hour and not shoot. Uh, run and gun. All right. The next three questions are about different subspecies, and I know you studied some of them, so let's run through them anyway, and you just pick your favorite based on not necessarily hunting, but just on your thoughts about the subspecies. All right. Rios or Osceolas? Osceola. Osceolas or Easterns? Osceola. Osceolas or Merriams? Eastern. Public land out west or private land Eastern. in the southeast? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. I Did can I lose you again? Okay. All right. Easterns or Merriams? Easterns. Okay. All right. Public land out west or private land in the southeast? Private land in the southeast. Two and three quarter inch, three inch, or three and a half inch shells? Three and a half. Four, five, six, or blended shells? I'm sorry, I didn't catch all that question. Yeah, we're having some technical difficulties. Four, five, six, or blended shot? Five. Fields turkeys or woods turkeys? Which do you prefer? Wood turkeys. Pump or automatic? Pump. Shotgun scope, rifle sight, holographic sight, or beads on your shotgun? Beads. Rubber boots, leather boots, snake boots? Leather boots. You roost a bird this afternoon and it's pouring rain at daylight. Do you hunt tomorrow morning? Yes. Okay. And the last one, your favorite place you've ever hunted? That would have to be one of my study sites, Silver Lake WMA. Cool. All right. Not too bad to have some technical difficulties. We're at 2 minutes and 59 seconds. Yeah, not so bad. I appreciate it. Well, I'll tell you what you did. You beat somebody that you probably have heard of a good bit, and that's Eddie Salter. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. That so not, not too shabby. All right. I so. Yeah, and we need to do something to fix that not having killed a turkey yet. Yeah, I know. It's take uh, some time off work. Yeah, I know, absolutely, and uh, that, that's definitely on my schedule here sometime soon to get out with a, a good friend of mine out in West New York. So Good deal. The season goes out for you guys on the 31st, is that right? Yep, that's right. Okay, good deal. So you you still got some time to go, about three, well, about two weeks, about 13 days or so, so that'll be good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I'm hoping to get away one of these weekends here soon. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into turkey hunting, but also how you got into your profession. Yeah, absolutely. So my story is not probably the normal story of uh, you know various people that you've had on your show, but uh, I, I do believe, based on what I'm seeing, that we're starting to see more and more hunters come from the same background as myself. I actually came from more of a suburban background and, and didn't grow up around hunting at all. I always had an interest in the outdoors uh, and was introduced early on to activities such as camping, fishing with Boy Scouts. Like I said, never really yeah. introduced to hunting early on. 
Given my interest in all things nature, especially wildlife, I continued to you know, explore the out- outdoors all the way through high school. And in high school, I actually got involved in a competition known as Envirothon, held amongst groups of students from different high schools, really testing their knowledge on all things wild, including uh, soil sciences, forestry, and wildlife. And uh, as I was entering my senior year of high school, trying to figure out, you know, exactly what I wanted to do, what my next step was going to be, uh, a friend of mine mentioned that the University of Georgia offered a degree program in wildlife management. And right away, I was pretty positive that that's what I wanted to pursue. And I started applying to actually a couple different universities that all offered similar programs. And uh, ultimately, I chose to enroll at the Warnell School of Forestry at UGA. And that was undoubtedly the best decision I've made of my professional career up to this point. Top to bottom, Warnell is one of the best, if not the best, forestry school in the country and provides amazing opportunities for the students to learn and develop as professionals. And yeah. as I got involved in that program and really started getting into my uh, my core wildlife studies, another opportunity was suggested to me to be involved in a program known as Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow, or CLFE. And really, that's a that's a couple day long, long program offered to college students in the wildlife management field who come from backgrounds where they really haven't been introduced hunting. The goal of that program is to educate those students uh, who are soon going to be professionals in the field on ethical hunting and the hunter's perspective. Because at the end of the day, you know, no matter what job we take, odds are we're going to be working very closely with with hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't. It's not necessarily a goal of the professors that are involved with that program to make a hunter a hunter out of the attendees, but rather just educate them on the importance of hunting. Right. Um, but as part of the process, though, they do introduce you to firearms and shooting sports. And actually, the final day of the program was a, a pheasant hunt that we all went on. Oh, cool. And uh, really, I mean, after that, uh, I was hooked immediately. And shortly after that, I purchased my first firearm, my uh, 12-gauge pump-action Remington 887, mm-hmm. and uh, started seizing every opportunity. I could to go shoot with friends, mainly sporting plays early on, and eventually I ended up starting my master's degree program and wound up working on a property in southwest Georgia known as the Joseph W. Jones Theological Research Center, one of my uh, study sites actually for my master's project, and once again was surrounded by a great crew of researchers and co-workers who helped take me kind of to the next step and actually introduced me to deer and turkey hunting. Yeah. So that was I actually shot my first year in January 2012, so not that long ago. I was I was 22 at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, since then I found time to go on, you know, various hunts with good friends and coworkers. And you know, as you heard in my uh, my questions there, I haven't shot a turkey yet. I have had the opportunity to go out a handful of times turkey hunting with friends of mine, but as we'll talk about a little bit later. You know, being a turkey researcher doesn't really afford my time to be a turkey hunter. Right. And then uh, shortly after that, you know, I, I jumped into my career and moved up here to New York. And uh, like I said, I'm still taking the opportunity to go out hunting when I can. But as a professional in the wildlife field, once again, nobody really tells you that if you really like to hunt, that's probably not what you should do. But, <laughs> but you know, like you said, it's just about scheduling some time and, and getting yourself getting yourself out there. So that's yeah. really uh, that, that's kind of you know how I got to the point I'm at right now. So. Yeah, good deal. Well, you know, that whole being a biologist and and getting an opportunity to hunt is, you know, that those things don't work quite hand in hand. It doesn't really go with any job. It's just one of those things you just have to make happen and and do it. And so I'm I'm glad to hear that you're going to be able to get out here and at least for the next two and a half weeks of your season or two weeks of your season and get an opportunity to get out there with a gun in your hand and a call in your hand and try to make something happen and interact with some birds. That's all the fun right there. Absolutely. Well, as you know, you wrote your thesis for your master's degree at UGA about how weather and nesting and hunting affect gobbling activity. And for us 
diehard turkey hunters, one thing that drives us absolutely crazy is we look at the weather forecast, and I know that on Thursday it's going to be 70 degrees, a bluebird day, no wind, 60% humidity. I go out there and the turkeys are just tearing it up, Mm -hmm. gobbling every breath, falling all over themselves to gobble. And the weather forecast for Friday is the exact same. No difference in the weather forecast. I go out into the woods and I'm hunting and I cannot buy a turkey gobble. And that's kind of sort of what you did your research project on. So I want to pick your brain about that and just learn about some of those findings. So before we dig into that, can you take a few minutes to tell us how and why you chose to do your thesis on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's all about opportunity, really. And so as I was entering the final year of my bachelor's degree, I, I knew I wanted to pursue a master's, and I was expressing that interest to uh, various supervisors at the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really wasn't long after that that Dr. Robert Warren, a highly respected individual and knowledgeable researcher on all things wildlife, approached me with this particular opportunity to research the effects of weather, nesting, and hunting on gobbling activity. And in this case, using a novel tool that hadn't been used for this purpose before, autonomous courting units, really just fancy way of saying, you know, a programmable microphone that put out fields. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really have a preference as far as topics or species were concerned. Honestly, you know, I had just started thinking about master's school and hadn't really given it much thought yet, but knew that if I had an opportunity to work with Dr. Warren, that that's, that's what I wanted. And so uh, as soon as he informed me of that opportunity, I jumped at it, and really, it was even more so intriguing because as he was describing it, it turns out that this research that I did and that we'll talk about today was really just a fraction of a larger research project that was occurring Mm -hmm. uh, on wild turkeys in southwest Georgia. And so it sounded like a great opportunity not only to get my master's, but also to gain a variety of experiences. Yeah, yeah, and be part of a bigger project as well, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, how long did your study last, and you mentioned the autonomous recording units is that did i say that right yeah, that, that's correct all right so how long did the study last and how exactly did you gather that data so i completed my uh, my masters in a little over two years and we gathered the data specific to my project using those recording units in total there were 14 recording units in the field at all times and mm-hmm. we actually i mentioned it briefly earlier but we had two separate study sites in southwestern georgia one was the joseph w jones ecological research center kind of a mouthful and the other one was uh <laughs> silver lake wildlife management area and so uh-huh. we had seven recording units evenly spaced on each of those study sites and they were programmed to record the first 10 minutes of every half hour 24 7 365 once we put them up they never came down until we we decided we had all the data we All right. So you were in the process of getting your master's for two years. So basically two years is how long those mics were out. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, we put them out a little bit earlier than that. I actually started collecting that data. I knew I was going to be on the master's project about a year out. So we started collecting that data spring of 2011 before I had actually started the master's project. I was still finished on my bachelor's. But uh, yeah, we ran them for two consecutive years. Okay. All right. And so... Just to make sure I understand correctly, this microphone is outside, That's like right. you said, 24-7, 365, and when it picks up a sound that resembles a gobble, it records that occurrence. Is so that how way, that works? It, pretty close. The way it was working was actually, in this case, we had programmed them to, no matter what, just record every half hour to start recording for 10 minutes. Okay. And so, actually, ultimately, by the time we were done, 
collecting these recordings, we actually recorded 19,880 hours worth of audio across two breeding seasons, 2011 wow. and 2012. And we ended up, after we processed all the data, we actually identified a total of 7,754 gobbles. Dang. Okay, so then this is recording just all of the noises in the woods, and you physically, you and others, I know, are physically listening to each one of these 10-minute recordings to count the number of gobbles. Luckily, we didn't have to listen to every single one. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, uh, I don't think we had enough time, to be honest with you. We had, yeah, that's a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah, when you break down those hours, it's total 828 days worth of audio uh, yes. nonstop. So we actually used a program, the software program that came with the recording unit to visually infect the data, which, you know, you can do a lot quicker than just listening to it. Right. And so it's pretty interesting in this program, once you plug in the audio clip, you know, it projects everything into a spectrogram form. And every mm-hmm. every sound that happens in the woods has its own kind of unique shape in the program. And so it just, it, you know, it took a matter of time of getting you to training your eye to pick out gobbles. And then from there, you know, it went, it went quickly from there, but there there was a lot of data to get through, so that was a large part of our project was data processing. Yeah. How many people at the Warnell School of Forestry were involved in this project with you, whether that's professors and or students? Right. There were uh, four professors that were advisors to me, as well as, including myself, five students working on the greater turkey project as a whole. So uh, four master students and one PhD student who actually came in towards the end of it and kind of wrapped everything up. Okay. Yeah, a lot of man hours went into this. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it was definitely a team effort because, as I said, we weren't just studying, studying gobbling activity. We were looking at the effects of prescribed fire on nesting ecology of hens, uh, roost site selection by gobblers, you know, just general home range selection by turkey. So there was a lot yeah. of different things going on, a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you another question that you may or may not know the full answer to. You'll know some of it, but I'm going to ask it for a reason. Where did the funding for this type of research project come from or parts of it? Right. So as I understand it, for my particular project, uh, a lot of the funding was provided by the state agency, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, Wildlife Resource Division. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, generally when we enter into contracts like that, there's there's a match that goes on there. So the University of Georgia was also contributing funding. And then uh, I also believe specifically the recording units that were uh, that we used were funded by the Georgia State Chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Okay. All right. There are a couple of things that I want to just bring to the listener's attention that were included in your answer there. And one is the state. Right. And a lot of that state money most likely comes from buying licenses. Absolutely. Hunters, hunting licenses and that kind of thing. So, you know, when when you do take that trip out of state and you see that out of state hunting license and I bought one in Georgia this year and I want to say that thing was 130 bucks something like that. Mm-hmm. That's money well spent. I hunted in Georgia for two and a half days and I'd pay that 130 some odd dollars again to do that because that's part of what it's going for. And then the other thing that I want to bring out to everybody's attention in your answer is Another portion of the funding for this research project came from the state chapter of the NWTF. So joining your national chapter, some of that national money is going to the state level. But also, when you go to your banquet, your local NWTF banquet that they have, and you buy a picture or you buy raffle tickets or you buy whatever it is you buy there, that's where some of this money is going. So 
You know, I hear people tell me all the time, well, I'm not a member of the NWTF. They're just about the money. Well, <laughs> the money is what makes the world go round. There can't be projects done like this without money. And the NWTF is forking money out to learn more about wild turkeys so that they can help conserve the wild turkeys so that us hunters will have more wild turkeys to hunt and that cycle keeps going and going and going. All right, I'm off my soapbox right now. No, you're absolutely, right. you're absolutely correct, though. I, you know, I reiterate everything you said. It's, it's all about people on the ground and, and, and your li- the listeners of this show, you know. You definitely yeah. want to be participating. So. That's exactly right. And there's a lot of volunteers that went into completing this project as well, and a lot of students getting some course credit and a lot of great experience to make that all happen. So, you know, it, it is more than just money. All right, so here's what I, along with everyone else who's going to be listening to this, want to hear. Let's talk about some of the results from your study. Okay. All right. So the big one that we all look at every single day and we have zero control over and we love to complain about it, how did the weather affect gobbling activity on the two sites? And one of the sites is a hunting site and the other is a non-hunting site. Am I correct in stating that? That's correct. Yeah. The the wildlife management area obviously is a population of turkeys that get hunted annually and and the Jones Center... Their population of turkeys was actually reintroduced to the site in the 1980s, and since that time has not experienced any sort of hunting pressure whatsoever. So yeah. that's going to play into some of the results that we talk about a little bit later. But as far as weather was concerned, uh, I, I feel your frustration. Uh, you know, I hear what you're saying, and it's, I don't know that we really have an answer yet, to be honest with you. I know that's probably not what everybody was hoping to hear. But just yeah. to br- really get into it here, you know, based on our initial results, as far as temperature is concerned, we concluded that gobbling was at its highest when the temperature was somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, mm-hmm. Also, gobbling activity appeared to increase as wind speed increased, uh, but up really above 10 miles per hour sustained wind speed. We either couldn't detect gobbling activity because it was interfering with the recording unit, or right. at that point, you know, gobbling was decreasing. It's one of those two things that happened. We're not really sure which one. And then. I guess that conclusion, you know, was supported by the finding that gobbling activity, in the case of our study, appeared to increase on days when barometric pressure was low. So, you know, what does that mean? Oftentimes, a low barometric pressure is associated with an unstable atmosphere, turbulent weather. Mm-hmm. The thing that got me, though, when you know, so we, when we got these results and we started looking at them, when we got we got to start drawing conclusions, uh, these results seem to be in contrast to a lot of what we in established previous literature on the topic. Right. Generally, the literature is in agreement that more gobbling activity occurs on clearer days, sunny days versus, you know, the cloudy kind of rain days. So one of our one of our conclusions we drew at the time, you know, we posed that turkeys may be queuing in on the low barometric pressure and the oncoming weather disturbance and gobbling more so ahead of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as as time has passed and I've gotten, you know, a couple of years away from completing my master's and I've had more and more time to think about that, I don't know that I'm satisfied with these results. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> In my opinion, we need to rerun the analysis. And I'll preface what we're going to talk about with the following statistics. So 78% of all of the gobbling activity we documented occurred within two hours sunrise. And actually 20, right. 20% of that actually occurred in the first half hour prior to sunrise. So that makes sense, right? Everybody's, everybody knows that a lot of gobbling activity is happening right 
right around sunrise. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that important? If you if you go back and you look at paper that we did, and this was you know just one of these minor oversights that I think may have a big impact on, on what we're seeing here. Uh, we compared gobbling activity to the mean daily averages of those very weather variables. So every day, basically, we we assigned an average temperature for the day, wind speed for the day, barometric pressure for the day, depending on uh, you know measurements that were take, taken all throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Well, now that I've had time to think about that, that doesn't really make sense because most of the gobbling activity was occurring in that two-hour time frame right around sunrise. So what we probably need right. to do is go back and rerun that analysis, just looking at the average of those weather variables during that two-hour window in the morning. Mm-hmm. So that you know there are a couple different things there going on, but I think honestly, as far as the weather conclusions are concerned, we've got a little bit more data processing to do on our end, and we got to go back and uh, rerun that analysis. Okay, and you mentioned the barometric pressure, that the gobbling was better when the barometric pressure was low. Is that low and steady, or is that high and falling, or, I mean, what what were the findings exactly with that? I believe, uh, based on the way we ran it, it would probably be low and steady. But, okay. Uh, you know, I think the conclusion that we were trying to draw there is that as we were heading towards that weather turbine, so declining, uh, that you know, they're gobbling ahead of that weather turbine. But as I said, that doesn't really, our findings as far as the weather is concerned, doesn't really keep with what the literature set up is. So uh, I do think I wouldn't read too much into into the weather findings because I do think you need to go back and, and reread those, draw new conclusions. Okay, fair enough. So another factor that you studied was nesting. And, you know, it it makes sense that as the hens fly down in the morning, feed for a little bit, whether they breed with a gobbler or not that particular morning, but feed for a little bit and then go sit on a nest, they have zero interest in breeding from that point until they get ready to go fly up for the most part. They're, They're interested in being moms. So how does the nesting activity affect the gobbling activity? Because it just makes sense to me that if the male turkey has the desire to breed, and if that supply of hens is not around who are willing to breed, mm-hmm. that the gobbler is searching more, which means he's going to gobble more. Right. But right. you tell me what the findings say. So once again, and you know, this can be the downside of only doing a two-year study. One year you see one thing, the next year you see the opposite, and then you know you're kind of wondering, well, which one is it really? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of happened in the case. In 2011, we saw basically what I would expect to see and what you just described. We documented between the two sites a total of about 3,000 gobbles, and on both of those sites, gobbling peaked after mean nest initiation. So what do I mean by that? That term refers to the average date that we determined most of the hens on the properties had initiated their first nest. So they they were basically sitting on their their nest at that point. Mm -hmm. So here we are in 2011, we observed that the peak in gobbling activity, the majority of that activity occurred after the hens had started sitting on their nest, which, like I said, makes sense. That's exactly what you would expect. There's fewer hens on the landscape, so the males having to work harder to try and find the few that still have bred yet. Right. In 2012, though, interestingly enough, we actually documented an approximately 60% increase in gobbling activity on both sites. So in 2011, recorded almost 3,000. All of a sudden, in 2012, both sites went up by about 60%, and we documented a little over 4,750 gobbles. Mm-hmm. That particular year, gobbling activity actually peaked before the mean nest initiation date as well. So we actually saw the majority of that gobbling activity occur before hens were sitting on their nests. Why do we think that happened? The best guess I have for that, I recall that that particular winter of 2011-2012 was uh, an above-average warm winter, 
And I suspect that as far as gobbling activity was concerned, the warmer weather may have played a factor, may have had, you know, the gobblers feeling a little better about themselves early, you know, early on in the spring. And, right. you know, they may have actually, uh, you may have kind of seen the same effect. You know, the females weren't ready to breed yet. So the gobblers were working hard, gobbling a lot very early on in the spring. Yeah. And uh, what, and actually on the backside of that, after all the hens had laid their nests, we saw a pretty steep drop off in gobbling activity, not a whole lot of gobbling activity late year that particular year. And I suspect that's due to just all the gobbling they were doing early on and, and just the toll that takes on them. You know, it wears them out. And so, like I said, that's kind of the downside of only having two years' worth of data. The longer the data set, you know, the, the stronger the conclusions you'll be able to draw. But right. I suspect what you would normally see is what we saw in 2011. And I think 2012 was just one of those off years because of the particularly warm winter we had. Yeah. And that makes sense. If you have a long, quote-unquote, early season, right. meaning what you said, that the weather warms up, there are a lot of pretty days, so you have more daylight right. during the, the days versus the cloudy days when you don't quite have as much daylight, then it would absolutely make sense. These birds are out and they're establishing their dominance and trying to gather up the girls and do all that pre-season, pre-mating stuff that they're doing. So, yeah, that, that does make sense. Now, I'm going to ask a question just to ask it, okay. but how possible is it that the mean nest initiation date mm -hmm. was missed? Um, man, that would be a great question for the, our particular student who, the master student who was actually doing that portion of study. But I think we feel pretty confident about that. Okay. And amazingly enough, you know, essentially you had four times that you were estimating that date because you had two sites, two years. And right. when you look at those four separate occasions, every single time those dates were basically within a week of each other, usually around the third week of April. So yeah. I think we feel pretty good about that, those dates. Okay. Okay. And then that probably also points to something that we hunters tend to look at every year because this year was a great example. We say, oh, well, you know, if it's sunny and beautiful in February and it's warm, we say, oh, turkey season is going to start early. But it's really not, there's not much of a variation as to when those hens are ready to breed and when they're going to nest full time, is there? No, not really. You know, a lot of these uh, activities, gobbling, nesting, things like that, are, are uh, you know, they cue in on those things based on sunlight for the most part, the mm -hmm. length of day. So even even in a year where you, you know, you had an aberration, we had a warm winter and they could have gotten started earlier, they're, they're cueing in on day length and photo period. And so you, what was interesting was even though in, we saw a change from 2011 to 2012 in gobbling activity, you know, the males were feeling a little better about themselves, like I said, in early spring because the weather was so nice, they started gobbling earlier. You didn't see a change in nest initiation. The hens stuck to that schedule that they established in 2011. Yeah, okay. That's pretty interesting. All right, so here comes the double-edged sword for all of us hunters. Okay. What did your findings reveal about how hunting pressure affects gobbling activity? I think we were able to make some interesting conclusions here. And, you know, I'll go ahead and just tell everybody who's listening. I, I think they're positive clues. I don't I don't think there's a bad here. But uh, we really kind of got to go back to the beginning to answer this question. So this research project really came about based on a single question. Now, all of our turkey studies were that we were conducting at time were projects that were spawned from a meeting of various state wildlife agencies and researchers. 
who all got together because they were seeing what they felt were, were decline in the wild bird population now. So they mm-hmm. kind of all got together and brainstormed, you know, are we seeing declines? And if so, what are, what are some thoughts on maybe why there's decline? So one of the ideas that was thrown out there was the timing of our hunting. You know, in, in all these various states, they don't really change that. You know, it's, it's been more of a historically established thing. This is always when we've had our hunting season, so this, that's when we're going to have it next year. Right. Um, so the question was, were we timing our hunting season poorly and not allowing turkeys enough time to successfully breed before, you know, getting out in the woods and applying hunting pressure, which has the potential to disturb that activity? Mm-hmm. So in an attempt to answer that question, uh, we mentioned it earlier, we conducted research on two study sites, one that had a hunted population and one that was essentially a naive population free of the effects of hunting. So with this question in mind, what did we observe? And really, as I was saying, with our statistical analysis, we didn't observe a significant relationship between gobbling activity and hunting pressure. So that's both in the positive and the negative direction. No statistical relationship as far as the statistics were concerned. But when we started looking into the data a little bit more, and just to give you a little bit of a background, so it's going to be important to understand how the hunting season was structured on this particular wildlife management area. So both in 2011 and 2012, on Silver Lake Wildlife Management Area in Southwest Georgia, the spring turkey hunting season opened, I believe it was late March, and the first the first hunt was actually a nine-day quota hunt. They only allow 35 people maximum on the property. Yep. And then that hunt closed down for about five days and then resumed with another nine-day youth quota hunt, so another 35 people were allowed on the property. When that hunt was over, once again closed down for five days, and then the hunting season concluded with just a three-week general hunting period. Okay. On private properties in Georgia, once the season opened on March 26th, it was essentially open for seven weeks until that, that mid-May time frame. So, right. But in this case, we're dealing with the WMA, which had two quota hunts and then a general hunt. So... What did we see in data? Well, in 2011, the structure of the hunting season on Silver Lake WMA captured 65% of all of the gobbling activity were recorded. And in 2012, that number was 61%. If this had been a private property where once the season opened on March 26th, the state opened for seven weeks till mid-May, in both of those years, we would have captured 79% and 76% of the gobbling activity respectively in that time frame. Mm-hmm. So those are pretty high numbers. That's pretty good, I'd say. You know, that, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for hunters who are getting out in woods. Yeah. Uh, it is important to note that in 2011, 37% of all gobbling activity occurred during the general hunt, so that three-week hunt at the end of the season on Silver Lake, mm-hmm. versus just 21% in 2012. So that goes back to what we were talking about, where 2012, they were gobbling a lot earlier in the year. Right. And so the general hunt, there probably wasn't as much success that particular year, but they were still, the DNR still captured that activity. It was just more so felt during the two quota hunts than general hunt on property. Okay. So when you compare the hunted versus the non-hunted sites during the hunting season, mainly just looking at that general hunt period, that three-week period in late April to mid-May, we noticed that in both years, the non-hunted site had 32%, 44% more gobbling active during that three-week period. Mm-hmm. We we didn't document, as I mentioned, a significant relationship between hunting pressure and gobbling, but these numbers led us to conclude that the decline in gobbling activity on the WMA as the breeding season progressed quite possibly reflected uh, an impact of harvest or hunting right. effect that wasn't occurring on the non-hunted population. Right. So, you know, like I said, there, there wasn't a significant relationship as established by the statistics, but it certainly appeared that given enough time with hunters on the landscape, you know, you're talking about three type weeks, we, we possibly did start to, uh, to have an impact. And do do I think that means that turkeys were gobbling less? Probably not. What I think is probably the more realistic scenario is that they were just leaving the WMA and going on to the adjacent private property. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but having covered all that information, I think the important thing is to come back to the original question. Are we timing our hunting bee poorly, not allowing turkeys enough time to successfully breed for applying hunting pressure? And when you look at how it was structured on Silver Lake WMA, I think the answer is no. I actually think, you know, given that the mean nest initiation date was the third week of April, which happened to fall right in between the closing of the second quota hunt and just prior to the opening of the general hunt. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about, you know, you were able to provide some opportunity to hunters, but you were also able to provide the turkeys the opportunity to successfully breed and then the hens to begin nesting before you really opened up the property to the general hunt and uh, really increase the pressure. So, like I said, on this specific site anyways, I think the answer to that question, no. I think the season was timed perfectly for, for everybody involved. Yeah. So... Approximately how big is the Silver Lake WMA? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think that particular site was somewhere around 10,000 acres. Okay. And the non-hunted property was uh, about three times size, close to 30,000. Okay. So we're talking seven recorders yep. set up on roughly 10,000 acres. And I would imagine they were set up primarily, you know, in a certain area within that 10,000 acre piece of property instead of spread out all over. Is that correct? That's actually a very good question. <laughs> so you're, you're getting at study design, which is very important. And uh, in this case, our primary concern when we were designing the study was trying not to have the recorders overlap, if at all possible, to try not to mm-hmm. duplicate gobbles. Yeah. So because it'd, it'd be really hard to tease that out. So we actually tried to, on both properties, um, spread them out as, as much as we could, um, which I think on the Silver Lake site, we were able to get spacing of about a, a kilometer and a half between each recording unit. Okay. And then on the other property, that was three times the size, you know, to try and keep everything as similar as possible, we just used the lower third of the property, which was about the same size, about 10,000 acres. Yeah. Right. Okay. The reason that I'm asking about that is because it only makes sense what you mentioned just a minute ago on the WMAs would play into the numbers that were gathered by you guys, and that is if there are two gobbling male wild turkeys within a one-square-mile area and you have a microphone in that area mm-hmm. and one of those is killed, obviously the numbers are not going to be exactly right, but you've just, in essence, reduced your gobbling in that area by 50%. Right. So, you know, I think that the fact that you guys factored in the killing of some gobblers and the fact that some of those gobblers would have moved from the WMA onto private property that could have could easily make that move where there's not as much pressure on them that that factored into your your number gathering and your statement of what you just said of hey hunting pressure is not really affecting the gobbling activity as much as you would think but killing turkeys is affecting your gobbling activity i mean you're taking you're taking turkeys out of the population so you know that that definitely affects the gobbling activity right i think it was ben rogers lee said you know if i could breathe life back into every one of them after i killed them i'd do it and hunt them all over again the next day yeah i think we all feel that way and and when you go into the woods the day after you've taken a turkey it's kind of sad you know that that bird that was up in that oak tree or that big pine tree is not there gobbling and and waiting on you to hunt him so yeah absolutely i've gotten to talk to you know working on this project a lot of turkey enthusiasts and invariably the conversation always comes around to you know the one that you were it took you a couple years but you were finally able to successfully hunt and take but then there's always a little bit of remorse on the back end of that story you know because you don't have that that chase to look forward to anymore with that particular bird absolutely well you obviously did a great job on your thesis because the powers that be over at UGA turned you loose, gave you a piece of paper and said, great job, go make the world yours. 
And you mentioned one thing that you would do a little bit differently the second time around. But if you had to do this study over again, is there anything that you would do differently other than what you said, which is to go back and cut that data down to maybe the first, the weather right, data right. down to the first two hours of the day? Right. Is there anything else you'd change about the way you guys did the study? Well, for the most part, I'm pretty happy with everything about the study. The biggest thing uh, that, you know, we, we really didn't touch on, we, we kind of touched on, but I didn't get into too much. If I had to do it all over again, uh, another goal of this project was to use that computer software that I was talking about earlier mm -hmm. to, you were supposed to be able to train that software to automatically search for these gobbles for you. So, you know, I could basically okay. just start the program searching overnight, come in the next morning, and it was supposed to fit out a list of what it thought were gobbles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I attempted for a long time to get that software to work the way I wanted it to, because obviously, like I said, we had 20,000 hours of recording go through. I, I wanted no part of having to listen to or look yeah. through all of them. Uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, and I wasn't able to successfully train that software, so if I had to do all over again, I'd bring in somebody who's a little more savvy as far as that end of the research was concerned, because that, that did make things very difficult. You know, we had aspirations when I started. The whole reason we collected the spring 2011 gobbling data was in the hopes that we could actually get three years of data to look at, so 2011, 12, 13. Mm -hmm. But it became very apparent towards the end of 2012 as we were closing in on my cliche date that... Even you know, even if we could collect the 2013 spring data, I wasn't going to have time to process it right. because it's such a bald process. So yeah. that's, that's probably my uh, biggest regret and my my only regret I have with this research that that didn't that wasn't more successful because that had the potential to also help all these other projects and all these other studies that are following in behind us. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, other than that though, I was extremely happy with the project and obviously happy, like you said, when they turned me loose on the world and gave me that important piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Is there any additional thoughts or info on the findings from your research on gobbling activity that you want to share with us before we wrap up? Uh, one thing, I, I just kind of mentioned it, but I'll, I'll say it again. Definitely stay tuned. I know for a fact there's more on the way. Uh, we're not the only mm -hmm. ones. We just kind of started uh, this whole process. In the weeks following my graduation, I had a lot of conversations with a bunch of different researchers all throughout the South that were looking to do the same thing, essentially the exact same study, but in their particular state. Yeah. So, you know, I know we weren't as successful as we had hoped we, w we would be, but I know there's a lot more on the way. So uh, that's exciting for everybody, I know. And hopefully, if there is an answer to be we can definitely find an answer towards that you know, oh so important weather question. Do we need to bother going out in the woods on this crummy day or not? And, yeah. and, uh, and one thing I always like to do, you know, I'm very appreciative for the opportunity I was handed. So I always like to take the opportunity to thank everybody that was involved in research. So my supervisors, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, Dr. Mike Connor, Dr. Robert Warren, Dr. Robert Cooper, the fellow researchers that I worked with for, you know, two years on these sites, Drew Ruttinger, Meg Dreich, Andy Little, Christina Perez, all of our funders that we mentioned earlier, the George DNR, the NWTF Real Estate Chapter, UGA, the Joseph W. Jones Ecological Research Center, and of course, all your listeners, as you put it earlier, you know, they all have a part funding the research that I was able to participate in. And then, of course, you know, family and friends and, and my wife, Michelle. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that that's, like you said, when I asked you how many people were involved, it's way more that went into this than Derek. And that's nice of you to give credit to all those other people who helped you out with this. And then professors who gave you the opportunity to get in and get your hands dirty with it. So that's that was really cool. Absolutely. 
All right. So a Georgia boy goes to New York State and has a job with the feds. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're working on right now on your current job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm working with the federal government, more specifically the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Wildlife Services. And uh, if you had asked me, did I ever expect to find myself an hour north of New York City with a, you know, being a wildlife biologist, that would have been the last thought on my mind. I thought I was going out (laughs) to the middle of nowhere where there'd be no internet, no cell phone service. (laughs) But uh, one of the interesting things that's happening in our field right now is, you know, as our populations are expanding and a lot of these wildlife populations are rebounding, they're getting a lot of human-wildlife conflict. And that's, that's mm-hmm. where we're experiencing a lot of growth in the wildlife management field right now, trying to address those conflicts between human and wildlife. And uh, so right. I find myself working as a wildlife biologist on Westchester County Airport in White Plains, New York. And uh, really, my whole purpose here is to help guide the airport. Uh, believe it or not, the miracle on the Hudson, you know, really brought a lot of this stuff to the forefront. But even before then, there was a lot of things happening behind the scenes in these airport environments. There obviously a huge concern. You know, it, it doesn't really matter the size of the animal. If it gets ingested ingested into an engine, uh, that particular aircraft going to have a lot of problems. Right. And so a lot of these airports are working behind the scenes. They're actually acquired by the FAA to uh, develop a wildlife hazard management plan for the airport where they've identified hazards both on and off the airport that are attractive to wildlife and to kind of lay out a plan as to how they go about, how they plan on going about addressing those hazards. So that's, that's what I'm doing at this particular airport right now. I'm helping them manage their plan and also, you know, just actively every single day manage the wildlife that are here in the airport environment for the, uh, the safety of flying public. Very cool. Well, you know, if you ever discover that there are some turkeys that need to be taken off of airport property, I need to give you my cell number <laughs> and let you give me a call. And I can be up there in a matter of hours. I mean, yeah. it's really yeah, it's really convenient. Absolutely. I might have to give you a call after this. You know, I know I haven't successfully hunted a turkey on my own time, but, you know, occasionally we do have turkeys that make it here on the airport. They just don't really get the message. And unfortunately, we do have to remove one, too, to, to kind of get the message across to the other one. Yeah, it really is a growing problem. You know, if you go to YouTube and just search wild turkey attacks, you know, these things are happening in basically people's yards and people's subdivisions yep. where the turkey's aggressive, it's mating season, and he's chasing the mailman around or chasing a reporter around who's gotten a tip on a wild turkey that's chasing around the residents of that neighborhood. Right. And, and that is, it is getting to be a bigger issue. And it's part of us encroaching on them. Well, it's every bit us encroaching on them, but it's also their populations not being hunted and not being controlled to a certain extent as well. So Yeah, and you know, the unhunted property I was talking about in our research here, you, a lot of your listeners may think of that as kind of a unique situation, but you know, come to these heavily populated areas where uh, you know, there just really isn't an opportunity to apply hunting pressure and you're dealing with basically the same thing, a naive population that doesn't really have any sort of, you know, fear right. to uh, a human activity. So, and like you said, they get yeah. pretty aggressive and territorial. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I know you're enjoying what you're doing today, but are there any desires or plans to get back out and do more wild turkey research? Oh, yeah. I think the door is always open. You know, obviously, uh, with the research I already did, you know, there are definitely plans to go back and reanalyze the data. Uh, yeah. But just in general, you know, I find research very rewarding. And at the end of the day, you know, I am a scientist. As such, it's my job to ask questions and seek out answers. So I have no doubt that sooner or later I'll have another question uh, as it relates to turkeys, and I'll find myself right back where I started. But 
but my more immediate plans are trying to become a, uh, a successful turkey hunter here in Tomeita. There you go. When you do do that, yep. please text me or email me a picture of you and your trophy. I would love to see it. And I'll tell you what we'll do. If you're able to take one this year, we'll get you on to for five or ten minutes let you tell us the story of your hunt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. We'll do. That'd be a lot of fun. We'll do. Yeah, I'll, I always love those stories yeah. because we can all learn. I've been turkey hunting for Longer than I care to admit, and probably close to as long as you've been alive. Right, right. And I always love to hear those stories because I learn something from each and every one of them. So, you know, stay in touch with me on that and let me know. But, Derek, I appreciate you taking time out of your day and discussing your research project for your thesis with us and sharing your knowledge that you gained during that project and hopefully opening the eyes for a lot of us hunters out there. And really the key is what I've been telling you guys since day one. You won't know if you don't go. When it's turkey season, go get in the woods. There have been some of the worst weather days that I thought I'm sleeping in, and I went and I killed a turkey. And those are days that I would not have gotten those memories of those hunts from had I slept in because the wind was blowing 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour or because there was a rain shower. So the season is limited. Our opportunities are limited due to work and family constraints. When you get the chance or sometimes you just have to make the chance, go and hunt. And I don't think you'll regret it. I know I certainly don't regret it when I do it. But well, Thank you very much for having me, Andy. I always love coming on to shows like this or, you know, doing interviews and sharing this information because at the end of the day, this was the whole purpose of the two years that I spent doing the research. It was funded by the people, and the purpose was to disseminate the information right back to the people. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you for doing that. I wish you luck for the last two weeks of your season, and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Same to you. All right. We'll stay in touch. Thanks, Terry. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview and got the same takeaway from it that I did. I mentioned my takeaway at the end of the call with Derek, and that is that we should go turkey hunting whenever we have the opportunity to go. You know, part of me wanted to hear that golden nugget that would tell me the best gobbling days by studying the weather forecast. But deep down, a larger part of me is glad that I didn't hear that golden nugget. The bottom line is, you won't kill a turkey laying in bed asleep during turkey season. Just because we hear lots of gobbling when we go turkey hunting, that does not mean we will kill a turkey. And, to flip-flop that, I can tell you numerous stories of turkeys that I killed where that was the only bird that I heard gobble that particular day. And he only gobbled three or four times. And that lack of gobbling doesn't make the memories of those hunts less special or that meat in the freezer less delicious. In fact, right now, I'm reflecting back on the second turkey that I killed this past season that I think gobbled maybe six times total before he strutted and drummed his way to the top of the same hill that I was sitting on. And I had to swallow several times to get my heart back down my throat and into my chest before I could shoot him. If the alarm clock went off that morning and I heard someone on the radio tell me that I was only going to hear one turkey gobble six times that morning if I went turkey hunting, I may very well have rolled over and just gone back to sleep after turning the alarm clock off. But you guys know me better than that. That's just not how I roll. All right. So that's all that I've got for you guys today. By now, though, you know the routine. I need you to do four things for me, please. Number one, please forward, like, and share this episode on social media. That is huge and really helps to spread the word about the show. Another thing that helps to spread the word about the show is word of mouth. Tell a hunting buddy or two about the show. That's a great help as well. 
If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show. Subscribing does not cost a dime, and you'll be sure to get notified when a new show is uploaded. Also, be sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.